welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 59th episode, our guest is Robert Dunham. Robert Dunham is an attorney and nationally recognized expert on the death penalty. Before becoming the Death Penalty Information Center's executive director, he was one of the leading capital appellate lawyers in Pennsylvania, arguing on behalf of the Commonwealth's death row inmates in its state and federal courts and in the United States Supreme Court. He served as executive director of the former Pennsylvania Capital Case Resource Center from 1994 to 1999, director of training of the Capital Habeas Unit of the Philadelphia Federal Defender's Office from 1999 to 2009, and as an assistant federal defender in the Harrisburg Federal Defender's Capital Habeas Unit from 2009 until March 2015. He started his legal career as a litigation associate at Schneider, Harrison, Siegel, and Lewis in Philadelphia, where he handled his first pro bono capital case. He previously served five years as a legislative assistant to State Representative Robert W. O'Donnell, later the Speaker of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives. He has taught in death penalty training programs offered by national, state, and local courts, bar associations, and professional organizations for more than 20 years. He was an adjunct professor of law at Villanova Law School for 11 years, teaching death penalty law, and he has also taught death penalty at Temple Law School and as a visiting scholar at Oklahoma State University. He is a life fellow of the American Bar Association and has served on the steering committee of the American Bar Association's Death Penalty Representation Project and on the board of directors of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, the Pennsylvania Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, and the Philadelphia Crime Victim Assistance Program, Northwest Victim Services, for whom he has also served as board president. A native of Philadelphia, he received his undergraduate degree from the University of Pennsylvania, where he was a university scholar in philosophy. He received his law degree from the Georgetown University Law Center in Washington, D.C., where he served as managing editor of the Georgetown Law Journal. At Georgetown, he received the Milton A. Kaufman Prize for Outstanding Contribution to the Journal and the Jeffrey Crandall Award for Commitment to Public Interest Law. And now, on to the show. I'm Robert Dunham. I'm the executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center. We're a national nonprofit organization that provides information and analysis on death penalty issues. Uh, we're not an advocacy organization, so we don't take a position uh, ultimately for or against the death penalty. Uh, but we are critical of the way in which states and the federal government have been administering it. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, as, a, as I know I've read your biography here, and uh, so... You, you've been a lawyer involved in death penalty cases for quite a while, is, is that correct? That's right. I was, uh, I was the director of the Pennsylvania Capital Case Resource Center, uh, which was one of the um, 18 resource centers that uh, Congress uh, authorized the creation of uh, in the 1980s and 1990s uh, when uh, the courts in Congress uh, realized that death row prisoners were getting inadequate representation and the courts had seen a lot of prisoners be executed despite having valid constitutional claims uh, because they were unable to get the, uh, uh, the claims presented at an appropriate time to the appropriate court. Uh, so I did that uh, for five years. Congress defunded the resource centers uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, and um, I moved to the Philadelphia Federal Defender's Office, where I was director of training in their capital habeas unit. I did that for 10 years and then was in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, Middle District Capital Habeas Unit before I was offered the position uh, here at the Death Penalty Information Center. But how have you seen the death penalty in this country change uh, over the years here? Um, we, we've obviously seen uh, more lethal injection. Uh, I know we used to have more, I felt like, uh, gas chamber situations before and, and things like that. So in your time, when you've been working, how have you seen the death penalty change in America? Well, the, the death penalty has changed in a number of ways, and executions are only uh, a small part of it. Um, when when I began handling death penalty cases in the 1990s, uh, you know, when when I went to uh, receptions or um, uh, fundraisers, things like that, public appearances, uh, I would invariably get somebody who said to me, "How can you represent these people?" Uh, and this was in the height of uh, the. Um, fear of crime epidemic in the United States in the 1990s. Uh, and at that time, uh, we had 
315 people sentenced to death in a single year. Uh, now we're looking at uh, 30 death sentences uh, in, uh, in in a single year. Uh, last year we had one new death sentence imposed for every 10 and a half death sentences that were imposed in 1996. Uh, and by the time um, I left uh, representing people on death row to take the job at the at the Death Penalty Information Center, uh, people were not questioning uh, the work that I did. Uh, instead, the kind of gratuitous comments, offhand comments that I would get uh, would be, you know, you've been doing God's work, uh, and why is it that we still have uh, a death penalty at all? So I noticed just personally that there was uh, a climate change that had uh, had taken place uh, about the death penalty. And when you look at the national public opinion polls, uh, that certainly seems to be the case. Because in the, uh, in the 1980s, late 80s, going into the early 90s, Gallup measured support for the death penalty at 80%. And last year, the Gallup poll uh, said it was 60%. And the Pew Research Center measured support for the death penalty at 78%, and last year they had it at 49%. That's, that's a very, very significant change. Last year there were fewer new death sentences than at any time since the U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional uh, in 1972, and the states then started bringing it back in 73. Uh, there were the fewest executions in 25 years, uh, and uh, fewer and fewer counties uh, are even seeking the death penalty. So there's been this huge change. When it comes to, to the way in which the death penalty is carried out, uh, in the modern era, which we say starts in, in the 1970s, uh, in the modern era, uh, at the start of the modern era, uh, you had executions by hanging, uh, you had executions by firing squad, you had executions by electric chair, uh, and you had executions by lethal injection. Now, every state uh, does executions by lethal injection. Some have these other methods as backups. And the reason was that uh, the public thought that all these other methods were brutal. Uh, they were viscerally unacceptable. They were violent. Uh, and um, the lethal injection had the kind of synthetic appearance of civility uh, because you didn't see uh, an inmate um, visibly suffering. It had the, uh, the appearance of a peaceful passing. Uh, and at that same time, uh, in the 80s and the beginning of the 90s, we were seeing botched electrocutions. Uh, Florida had a case where one of the prisoners literally caught on fire uh, and blood blood was seen streaming from the hood that they put over his head. Uh, part of that was because uh, the personnel were not properly trained uh, and for some inexcusable reason uh, had attempted to use a synthetic sponge instead of a natural sponge. Uh, and the synthetic sponge caught on fire um, when, um, when they used it in the electrocution. But I've had I've had colleagues and I've had friends uh, who've had clients who are electrocuted, uh, and they reported to me, I, 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 they still have difficulty talking about it 20 years later, um, that they went in to see uh, a client whom they had spent years representing uh, and had developed a relationship of trust and confidence and understood uh, the person's emotional uh, frailties. Uh, and they watched the person be electrocuted in front of them uh, and talk about how, to this day, they can't get the smell of the singed hair and burned flesh uh, out of their mind. Mm. Uh, and, you know, the public doesn't have the smell uh, and the sight of it, but uh, the public is aware of how violent uh, and just viscerally unappealing uh, that method of execution is. States moved away from that uh, to lethal injection. So that's been that's been the big change. But now we're we're uh, we're understanding that lethal injection uh, is not the peaceful passing that uh, the people thought it would be, uh, and that in fact, especially after the pharmaceutical companies uh, have uh, essentially uh, boycotted uh, the lethal injection process, they don't want their medicines used to kill prisoners, uh, and the states have moved to 
preventative uh, for tooth extractions and uh, and colonoscopies. But it's even with tooth extractions, it's not an anesthetic. They use Novocaine with it. Uh, it's inappropriate for executions. Uh, and with the uh, with use of midazolam, we've seen uh, executions that have taken two hours. We've seen people gasping for 45 minutes. Uh, we've seen a lot of people who were visibly conscious when they should have been unconscious uh, and would have been aware of uh, being suffocated uh, by a paralytic drug that was being used, uh, and they would have felt like they were drowning, uh, and they would have been conscious when the potassium chloride, the, the killing drug, uh, chemically, uh, the description in the Supreme Court argument uh, was is like the chemical equivalent of being burned at the stake. Hmm. So they were conscious as uh, that burning sensation seared through their veins on their way to stopping their heart. Um, so the nature of, of, of the death penalty has changed. It's being used a lot less frequently. The public is uh, is shying away from it, doesn't want it used uh, the way that it was being used in the past. Uh, and we now have significant problems with every method of execution. Yeah. Well, you just brought up so many things that I want to cover there for sure. Um, though I kind of feel like kind of what's happened in Arkansas is a, is a kind of a great microcosm of like kind of like you're describing everything that's that's been wrong with the death penalty, including the the lethal drug shortage. Um, now I feel like I heard a, a argument from maybe Antonin Scalia or somebody on the Supreme Court saying, "Oh, you know, this is just with the drug makers and and them not producing the drugs." It's like, well, you know, this is just a backhanded way to fight the death penalty. If you want to fight the merits of the death penalty, you should do that on its face. Uh, and then, you know, people or whoever pressuring these these drug companies, these drug companies not making these anymore, you know, it wouldn't be this botched execution or whatever if they just had the correct drugs. So what's your response to that line of thinking? Yeah, that was, uh, that was Justice Alito oh, okay. in, the, in the argument on Glossop versus Gross. Uh, and he described what he called uh, a guerrilla war against death penalty, uh, which, which was really interesting uh, because um, there is nothing improper uh, with people advocating for or against the death penalty. Uh, and if you change the context a little bit uh, and uh, you, you think of, of the uh, the, the issue of, uh, let's say, provision of abortion services, uh, where there is overt uh, and, in some cases, uh, uh, direct confrontations uh, with people who provide the services. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, has emphasized that they have First Amendment rights, uh, and those rights uh, need to be protected. Uh, and so limiting uh, the speech opportunities uh, of people in that setting, and I, I just picked that issue because it's one in which the, 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 um, uh, the Supreme Court has spoken. Um, but um, the, the, that's critically important to protect uh, the free speech rights of people who are behaving in a, in a lawful manner, uh, even if it's uh, deemed as hostile by other people. Uh, I, I thought it was very interesting that in the context of capital punishment, uh, when there's protest against a uh, increasingly disfavored public policy, uh, that uh, the members uh, of the court who are the most uh, most vocal proponents of the death penalty felt that the death penalty is so um, unstable and under such siege uh, that they um, uh, they used a, a extraordinary political rhetoric uh, in talking about the free speech activities uh, of Americans and others. Uh, but apart from that, there actually isn't any evidence that uh, anybody has been harassed by, uh, uh, by opponents of the death penalty. Uh, and the evidence that's been developed over the years actually uh, indicates uh, that the uh, drug manufacturers themselves want nothing to do with capital punishment. And that's, when you think about it, that makes sense. Because uh, who are the drug manufacturers anyway? And what's their corporate culture? Well, people think of Big Pharma as a major financial, uh, you know, a big business. Uh, but there are actually two separate cultures uh, that, uh, that are in place uh, in the major pharmaceutical companies. The first is the employees who develop the medicines. And the second is the marketers. And they have different concerns, but both of the concerns lead them to not want to participate uh, in lethal injection. First, when you talk about the people who are developing the medicines, the corporate mission 
of these big companies, and they, they are big companies, uh, but the corporate mission uh, is to save lives, uh, to improve lives, to improve health. They don't want, the people who develop these medicines, the doctors and the scientists, don't want their life's work trying to save people to be used to terminate the lives of people involuntarily. Uh, and so there is internal opposition to um, the lethal injection drugs, uh, well, the medicines, uh, being misused as lethal injection drugs. The people who invented these drugs don't want that to happen. They don't want their life's work tarnished. And on the business side, it's actually bad business for the companies. You know, every company uh, wants its good name to be in place. Uh, when you think of the National Football League and what the, the steps they've taken to try to prevent concussions, uh, or uh, Major League Baseball and the steps they've taken uh, to try to prohibit the use of steroids, uh, all of that is to preserve the corporate good name uh, and the integrity of their product. It's the same kind of thing when it comes to the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, they, uh, Johnson & Johnson, is a family company. Uh, think of whatever the slogans are uh, for, um, for, for all the companies. Their good name has a financial value. And the public image of their products also has a financial value. And they believe that if their medicine is come to be thought of as a killing drug, that disparages the product. That diminishes the financial value of the product. Uh, and if I'm going to have a tooth extraction with Novocaine, or I'm going to have a cardiac catheterization, uh, and someone is going to give me a sedative to go with it, uh, I, as a patient, I don't want to have the drug they use to kill people. <laughs> so those are, you know, that has more to do with the drug companies um, essentially pulling out of uh, the lethal injection market uh, and saying that we are going to adopt controls on the distribution of our product uh, because we don't want it used for off-label purposes. That's illegal. Uh, we don't want it used for non-medical purpose, and there's, killing prisoners has never been an approved medical purpose, uh, and we just don't want our product associated with death when it's all about life. <clears throat> That's why the pharmaceutical companies are against their medicines being used in execution. Right. And then you kind of have uh, another on the flip side of it with the states. Um, you know, I know Arkansas was, was one of the states that uh, either keeps, I, I don't know if they do keep, I think they probably do keep the drug manufacturers, the drugs they use secret or the, or the exact particular secret. I know here in Indiana, uh, we just had a thing go through the legislature here uh, with the budget that says that we can now do that, I guess, too, and not say who, what drugs we're using. So, I mean, uh, you know, these drug companies have these objections. But if they don't know their drugs are being used for these, uh, that they can't really pinpoint. You know what I mean? Where it's happening. So, well, that's the actual purpose of the uh, of the secrecy provisions that we're seeing um, states that want to carry out death penalties adopting. Uh, in fact, all of the states that have carried out executions recently uh, have adopted some form of secrecy. That's problematic in a number of ways. The first is that. This is an important public policy, uh, and the government should be transparent. Uh, whether you're for the death penalty or against the death penalty, people of good faith don't want the states breaking the law to carry out the law, and they don't want the states engaging in questionable practices uh, to carry out the law. Initially, uh, the states said that they needed the secrecy to protect the uh, drug companies, uh, so that they would not be subject to some kind of public backlash. <laughs> That's hogwash. Uh, A likely story. <laughs> that, well, you know, that, I mean, it, it, it's true. It, it's true that there is a backlash mm -hmm. uh, when um, uh, when drugs, when a company's drugs uh, are used in executions. But the backlash is coming from the company mm -hmm. themselves. Uh, it turns out that the secrecy provisions uh, are not there to protect the companies uh, from, uh, from adverse publicity. They're there to prevent the companies from learning that states are improperly obtaining their medicines and using them in execution. Now, ultimately, that's going to be futile. And the reason I say that is because 
talking about the distribution here of controlled substances. These are all drugs that can be obtained only through prescription. And the pharmaceutical companies have an obligation to track where their medicines go. Uh, they don't want their drugs to be used in executions. They have adopted policies that prevent their uh, distributors uh, from selling them for off-label purposes, any off-label purpose, uh, and um, when they've seen that the medicines are getting in the hands of prisons for use in executions, they have specifically prohibited their distributors from selling them for use in executions, and in some instances for selling them uh, to prisons altogether. The secrecy provisions are supposed to uh, prevent the drug manufacturers from figuring that out. But they have developed tracking procedures, uh, and they are now able to track individual vials of medicine. Uh, there's a hidden side of all of this because uh, the tracking mechanisms have become more costly uh, as they, as the manufacturers have had to come up with new ways of ensuring that their medicines are not misdirected and misused. Uh, and I like to consider that. Uh, I mean, not like as in it makes me happy, uh, but but uh, I like to consider it that way as uh, as a form of analysis, uh, as uh, a kind of death penalty tax on medical care, because if there has to be uh, additional uh, protections, uh, more administration uh, in place to ensure that the drug uh, does not go where it's not supposed to go, that means the distribution process is going to cost more. And if the distribution process is going to cost more, it's going to cost more not just in carrying out execution. It's also going to cost more when you have your tooth extracted or when you have your colonoscopy or your cardiac catheterization. Uh, and the increased cost of those procedures uh, is a hidden death penalty tax uh, on the general public. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think about it that way. That's interesting. Um, now, you mentioned uh, earlier a couple more primitive ways of carrying out the death penalty. I know, for example, Utah, uh, I believe, is the only state that has it as a provision where you can use the firing squad still here. And I know there was a appellate court judge a couple of years ago that wrote an opinion saying, "Hey, you know, so much problem with these uh, lethal injection drugs. Let's just go back to something like that, or who knows, maybe the guillotine or something." So, I mean, is there a way that the death penalty, in your view, could be carried out that wouldn't involve these these drugs that would be humane, or is just everything we know about is is flawed in some way? Well, the the kicker in your question is that that would be humane, mm -hmm. uh, and I think the um, that that's the judgment that legislators have to make. Um, Pope Francis made an interesting comment uh, when he was in the United States uh, last year that. Uh, there is no such thing as a humane execution. Uh, and by that, he meant that the involuntary termination of a human life uh, is by its nature inhumane. Um, and when you think about it, um, if someone is struggling to stay alive while somebody else is killing them, that's never going to be uh, a peaceful demise. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, is it intolerably cruel, intolerably painful, uh, and unconstitutionally painful. Uh, legislators in general, if they, if they had to do it their way, if they could get their way, they wouldn't want the states violating the law uh, and you know, violating drug contracts in order to obtain the drugs, um, misleading drug distributors about what they're going to use the drugs for. They would rather, if they could have their way, do it on the up and up. But it's become increasingly more difficult for them to do that. Mm -hmm. They're now faced with a challenge. And the challenge is, uh, do we engage in these secretive activities and highly questionable activities uh, to carry out executions with improper drugs that are likely to result in a synthetically civil uh, and apparently visibly peaceful death, but one that's probably very, very painful? Uh, or do we want to try to change to different drugs, or do we want to change the method of execution? If you change the method of execution, the Supreme Court has never said that any of the other methods of execution are unconstitutional. The problem legislators have 
uh, in making that change is that the American public thinks that they're improper. There was a, uh, a poll done in February of 2015 by an organization called YouGov, Y-O-U-G-O-V. Uh, and the YouGov poll um, asked Americans what do they think about lethal injection, what do they think about hanging, gas, uh, electric chair, uh, beheading, firing squad. And a majority of Americans thought that lethal injection was an acceptable way to carry out execution, setting aside the question of the botches that we've since seen uh, and the improper conduct in obtaining the drugs. But the method itself, uh, most Americans thought, was an appropriate method of carrying out execution. When it came to everything else, a majority felt that every other method uh, was unconstitutionally cruel and inhumane. They did not want uh, firing squad. They did not want gas or hanging. Uh, they definitely did not want beheading, whether it's a guillotine or the way it's carried out in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and they also didn't want gas. Uh, the issue with gas, and this is something that Europe does not understand what the U.S. states are thinking. Uh, in the Second World War, millions of innocent Europeans um, were gassed to death by the Nazis. Uh, and uh, for Europe and much of the rest of the world, it isn't a question of whether it is a, quote, humane death. Uh, it is why would you ever be considering killing your citizens in the same manner that the Nazis uh, annihilated millions. Yeah. Uh, so uh, every other method of execution is considered highly problematic, and so states have a real dilemma uh, when they have to decide how they're going to carry out executions if they want to move away from lethal injection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, don't ask Sean Spicer, I guess, about that. But <laughs> uh, well, the you know the response to that uh, is you know that tells you everything you need to know about the undercurrent uh, about lethal gas. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, definitely. Um, now, my thing is, even if we could do it, quote unquote, humanely, and you did point out the problems with using that word in reference to this, but even if we would ever under per perfect circumstances, we've still killed innocent people in this country. We know we've done this, and we know we've done it over and over. And you know, I've seen some statistics say that it's it could be four or five percent, maybe even more of, of the ones we've we've killed. Uh, what are the statistics that you have on that? And there's probably ones we don't we'll never know. You know, we killed how many innocent people we've killed. So that's right. We don't know. We don't know how many innocent people have been executed. The estimates are that four percent of everybody who is on death row uh, is probably innocent. Mm -hmm. Um, yesterday, um, we had, uh, May 11th, uh, we had the 159th exoneration from death row since the 1970s. Hmm. Uh, and when you look at that, there have been 159 exonerations. There have been something like 1,450 uh, executions. Uh, so we're looking at one exoneration for every nine and a half executions, which is a rate of error uh, that, you know, if, uh, uh, if you were going to uh, have a car crash uh, one in ten times, uh, I think you wouldn't be driving. <laughs> uh, so, it, you know, it, it's a rate of error that we would find unacceptable uh, in, uh, in, in, in virtually any other public policy. And it's not the only kind of error uh, that's present in capital cases. Uh, 159 exonerations. On our webpage, uh, uh, our website, uh, there's a page on innocence, and you can jump from that page uh, to a page on individuals uh, who were executed with significant doubts uh, about their guilt. Uh, we have a dozen people who are listed uh, there, and 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 summaries of their stories uh, that indicate pretty strongly uh, that we have almost certainly uh, executed people who are innocent. Uh, and there are dozens more uh, that we'll never know about, mm -hmm. uh, where there have been allegations of innocence, but the evidence never gets tested because the person has been executed. Uh, or um, they were executed based on uh, pressured statements by witnesses who had incentives to testify falsely. When Troy Davis was executed uh, in Georgia, uh, there were there was no physical evidence uh, that uh, that linked him uh, to the offense. There were uh, there was eyewitness in quotes 
uh, testimony from nine witnesses, seven of whom came forward uh, and said that they had been pressured into testifying falsely. Uh, there had been threats against them, uh, and they were also pressured uh, when they had agreed uh, to come forward and to recant. Uh, most objective observers believe that Troy Davis was innocent, uh, but the standard for proving your innocence once you've been convicted is so high uh, and is virtually insurmountable uh, that people who most objective observers uh, would say were innocent and every unbiased person would say could never be convicted uh, based upon the evidence that was now available, uh, they've uncertain, they, they have certainly been executed. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and then you see these cases that get a lot of attention like that that, you know, kind of highlight that, but there's ones that don't get as much attention that, that we don't focus on as much. Uh, one one of the ones for me was uh, watching the West Memphis 3 case unfold, um, you know, with the Paradise Lost documentaries and all that, and it's that that's a case that got a lot of attention, but I just feel like that could be, you know, that was just one we happened to know about, you know what I mean, that just happened to be getting all this you know, spotlight on it, and, I, and and those folks and those folks don't even count in our exoneration statistics. Oh, really? Because in the West, in the case of West Memphis Three, I don't think there's a serious question uh, as to innocence. I think that that was a wrongful capital prosecution, uh, and an innocent man uh, was sent to death row along with the others mm-hmm. uh, who were wrongly convicted. Um, but what happened was, oh right, yeah. In order to obtain his freedom, he pled guilty uh, or, or pled no contest to charges that he didn't commit, you know, to crimes he did not commit, uh, in order to secure his release. Uh, and when I was a, um, uh, a capital defense lawyer, uh, I've represented clients uh, who have been exonerated and are now free. Uh, and uh, I, in my office, have represented clients who are now free but not technically exonerated because they pled guilty uh, or pled no contest uh, in instances in which they did not commit an offense, but the state was going to retry them anyway. Uh, They're going to face a death-qualified jury, a special, a special jury that you get in a capital case that is much more conviction-prone, uh, and they faced uh, a life sentence if they got convicted of first-degree murder and still possibly death. And to avoid those uh, consequences and to be reunited with their families, they made the difficult choice to plead to something they did not do so they could secure their release. And that's called an Alford plea, is that right? It's an Alford plea. Yeah. That's right. Uh, and the, uh, the thing is, there are dozens of people like that mm. who are innocent, who still have a criminal record uh, as a result of this, uh, and who were wrongly sent to death row. And when we talk about the 159 exonerations, and that being one for every nine and a half people who are executed, when you add the people who are innocent, who pled to crimes that they did not commit, uh, we're looking at error rates uh, that are much more substantially higher than that. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, of course, if you take that plea, too, you then can't turn around and sue for wrongful conviction, I assume, also, right? Right. So, yeah. Um, you know, I think race and class definitely have to figure into all this pretty heavily. Um, you know, poor poor people, especially non-whites, uh, seem like they're getting the death penalty far more often than people that, you know, could, you know, afford uh, decent representation. Uh, a lot of these are public defender cases, I feel like. Um, is that is that kind of your view as well? Yeah. That, uh, that's almost invariably the case. Uh, so much so, there's a, uh, there's a, a joke, if you will, that uh, Sister Helen Prejean says. I don't know if she's the first one who came up with it, but, uh, but she is the one uh, who's credited uh, with it, uh, that it's called capital punishment because if you have the capital, you don't get the punishment. Uh, and um, what, what we see when we look across the country uh, is that virtually everybody who is on death row is indigent. Almost everybody. There are rare exceptions, um, but virtually everybody uh, is, is indigent. Uh, and that, that's important in a number of respects uh, because 
poverty plays a significant role in a lot of these offenses. And poverty plays a significant role uh, in the disabilities that a lot of the prisoners who end up on death row have, uh, whether they're innocent or whether they're guilty. Uh, and poverty plays a significant role in who represents you. Uh, you, are, you are much more likely to be sentenced to death uh, if you have a court-appointed lawyer who doesn't have in institutional expertise uh, in defending death penalty cases, uh, and a court-appointed lawyer who has to go to the court uh, and, and depends upon the court uh, for his or her business, uh, his or her um, uh, future money, uh, and has to depend upon the court uh, in providing money for investigators and money for mental health experts and money for forensics experts. Mm -hmm. uh, we find that in jurisdictions that have an institutional capital defender, and I'll use Philadelphia, uh, Los Angeles, and a couple of states as examples, uh, there is a huge difference in the rate at which people get sentenced to death when they have an institutional defender versus a court-appointed lawyer. In 1992, um, Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is one of the two percent of counties in the United States that has put more than half of everyone who's on death row on death row. Uh, and uh, Philadelphia, in 2001, uh, had 131 people on death row. Um, up until 1992, it didn't allow the public defender system to handle death penalty cases. Uh, and the, uh, the court appointment process was considered deeply flawed. In 92, the Philadelphia Public Defender was permitted to create a homicide unit, uh, and they were given 20% of the homicide cases in the city. They didn't get to pick the cases. There were 20 cases at random. So from that point forward, we've had this experiment. Uh, the social science experiment. Uh, and we have the 20% of death penalty cases that go to the public defender's office and 80% that go to court-appointed counsel. Mm -hmm. Since that time, there have been 87 death sentences in Philadelphia. And if counsel made no difference, you would expect that 20% of those 87, which uh, we can check the math, but it's something like, in 17 or 18, uh, would have been public defender cases. They've had zero death sentences. And when we look at Los Angeles, uh, in the last, I believe it was last 10 years, the, the Fair Punishment Project uh, did a study of the cases that, the capital cases that had been decided on direct appeal, uh, I think it was between uh, 2005 and 2015. Uh, and they found that although the public defender in Los Angeles uh, handled um, half the cases, they had something like 10% uh, of, the, of the death verdicts. There were another 30% of the cases that were handled by a backup uh, conflict uh, institutional defender. Uh, they had a small percentage uh, of the death sentences. And a minority of the cases were handled by court-appointed uh, counsel who had to petition the court for resources. And they had a majority of the death sentences. When Texas went to a regional public defense system, uh, in, in most of the, of the state. They now have uh, a capital defender uh, that the counties contract with uh, to provide services in capital cases. Uh, and when Georgia went to um, a, a, uh, uh, an institutional capital defense system, and when Virginia did that, the rate of death sentencing plummeted. <laughs> so poverty and the counsel you get is a huge has a huge impact in whether you go to death row or whether you don't. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I feel like another factor that kind of figures into all that is uh, mentally handicapped prisoners uh, seem to be particularly vulnerable to the capital punishment. We kind of saw that uh, play out in Arkansas here. I, I 
can't remember the gentleman's name, but I believe it was the first one of the four they executed was uh, had fetal alcohol syndrome, and I believe his, his IQ was questionably possibly in the 70s. And I know that, um, and you probably have more information on this than I do, but there was a Supreme Court case a couple of years ago where they were trying to decide if 70 was the, the marker for whether or not you should be able to execute somebody. Um, talk a little bit about how mental health kind of plays into all this. Well, there, there are two big mental health issues. Uh, one is the question of intellectual disability, uh, which used to be known as mental retardation, mm-hmm. uh, and the other is the question of mental illness. Um, what we see is that um, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that people who are intellectually disabled cannot be executed. Uh, and uh, they said in 2002 in a case called Atkins versus Virginia that there was an established national consensus against executing people who at that point were called mentally retarded. Um, 30 states banned the execution of people with intellectual disability. The 20 who didn't have the death penalty at all uh, and uh, and then 10 of the states that had the death penalty but specifically said you could not execute those who were intellectually disabled. Uh, the court said the direction of change uh, indicated that the U.S. was moving away from that uh, and there was now a national consensus against it. What happened after that was that a number of the states that wanted to carry out executions of people who were intellectually disabled, instead of adopting procedures that would enforce the constitutional ban against their execution. Uh, They came up with procedures that made it more difficult to prove intellectual disability. So states like Georgia came up with a system that required uh, that you prove intellectual disability by clear and convincing evidence, which has had the effect of allowing the execution of individuals whom every expert say uh, is more likely than not mentally uh, retarded, intellectually disabled, uh, but they could not say um, that there was clear and convincing evidence of it. Uh, Texas, when it came to the question of adaptive deficits, um, decided they were going to engraft onto this, the, the clinical um, criterion um, whether you are able to, uh, to perform certain basic functions. Uh, they would ask certain other questions, like, did people who knew you consider you to be mentally retarded? Uh, were you able to lie effectively and escape detection. That's got nothing to do with whether someone actually has intellectual disability. Uh, And that case was argued uh, in the Supreme Court last fall, uh, a case called Moore versus Texas, and the Supreme Court earlier this year said that that kind of non-scientific use of lay stereotypes pernicious stereotypes. They're the kind of things that uh, the disability community has been fighting for years. Uh, That's an inappropriate way for determining whether someone has an intellectual disability. Uh, Texas would not exclude that person from receiving public assistance benefits that are available to people with intellectual disability, and yet uh, uh, would say that that same person whom they would consider intellectually disabled for purposes of social services is not intellectually, excuse me, is not intellectually disabled for purposes of execution. Hmm. And states like Florida adopted this 70 IQ cutoff, saying that the the clinical standard is uh, if your IQ is below 70, you um, you may have intellectual disability, but if you if you have an IQ score above that, we're not going to consider anything else. Hmm. That's junk science. Uh, that's not used in the clinical community, and in fact, there are a number of test-taking phenomena uh, that might inflate artificially someone's IQ score. Uh, if you've been given a test, an IQ test in the past, and are familiar with the test itself you are likely to score higher. That doesn't mean your IQ is higher. That means there's an artificial consideration that, uh, that erroneously raises your IQ. It's called a practice effect. There's a well-known phenomenon that um, the older a test is, the higher people score on it. No one is quite sure why, but it's been, this phenomenon has been noticed. Uh, it's been noticed for half a century <clears throat> that the older a test gets, the less reliable the norms are when you score it. Uh, And so if a test was normed, it was invented,
in 1970, uh, and his grading structure was set up in 1970, if you administer that same test in 1980, people are going to score as much as nine points higher. Hmm. And you will, uh, if, if you have a change of even three or four points, you may take somebody out of being under 60, uh, under 70, to above 70, and they'd be artificially excluded, despite the fact that their real IQ falls under that. Hmm. So there are a range of things. There's this thing called the standard error of measurement uh, that makes clear that IQ is not an actual number. It's a range of scores. Uh, so that if somebody scores a 73, their IQ might actually be a 68. It could be higher, but they could fall within that range. So these folks, these states, who wanted to make it more difficult to prove intellectual disability uh, were adopting this hard IQ cutoff that was making it so that people who had intellectual disability were still being executed. Hmm. The recent executions in Arkansas, um, at least one person um, is most likely intellectually disabled, and he was executed. Um, he was executed because his lawyers had not raised the question of intellectual disability uh, early enough in the process. Uh, and his claims were considered procedurally defaulted. So despite the fact that he was probably not eligible for the death penalty in the first place, he was executed without any fair determination of whether he was even eligible. Uh, that's the, one of the big issues with intellectual disability. With mental illness... Uh, it's widely considered that people who are mentally ill are less morally culpable, less morally responsible for what they do. Now, they commit some of the most atrocious offenses. Uh, and, you know, the, uh, when I describe this to, you know, to folks on the street, it's like, well, what he did was crazy. You know, and if you have something that's inexplicable, and it's horrible in its violence and intensity. Uh, and what it really is, is the reflection of rage from someone who's uncontrollably and violently mentally ill. Those are some of the worst cases, but that doesn't mean that person is so morally culpable that they should be sentenced to death. They are certainly horrible murders. But when you have a lot of these horrible murders, uh, and you learn that they are a product of mental illness, that changes uh, the whole sentencing calculus. Mm -hmm. And we saw in, let's, let's take the, uh, uh, the movie theater shooting uh, in Aurora, Colorado. Mm -hmm. James Holmes. Horrible mass shooting. Terrible, terrible crime. Uh, and yet a jury, when it was presented the evidence that this was a mentally ill, delusional young man who, whose life had been falling apart because of his mental illness. Three jurors said he should not be sentenced to death. Uh, and he was, um, he was spared the death penalty. But poor lawyer, uh, poor defendants who are mentally ill, who don't have the luck of being assigned a qualified and high-quality institutional capital defender, uh, but get uh, a court-appointed lawyer who's got to ask the court for resources uh, and doesn't get to choose uh, the right doctor, someone who's a specialist in paranoid schizophrenia or a specialist in bipolar disorder or a specialist in fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, you just get whatever doctor the court provides for you, those people will oftentimes not have their mental illness properly presented. Uh, and worse yet, may have it presented in such a superficial way that the jury thinks, oh my goodness, this person is a violent, rabid dog that we need to put down. Uh, and that's where you have the intersection of poverty and mental illness. Um, and we see that a disproportionate number of people who are executed are people uh, who are mentally ill. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's very disturbing. Yeah, um, 
As far as the um, preventing other crimes through the death penalty, if you want to look at it from that angle, that's not even an effective argument either, is it? I mean, it's, it doesn't seem like states that have the death penalty or ones that use it are any safer than ones that aren't, and I've actually seen the opposite be true. Is that your finding? Yeah, that's right. Um, the One of the major reasons you hear uh, advanced uh, for why the death penalty is necessary uh, is that it deters murders. There is, in fact, no evidence that that's the case. There were some studies that have been thoroughly debunked uh, because the methodology was completely inappropriate uh, that, uh, that claimed that there was a deterrent effect. But the National Academies of Science uh, took a look at the studies and said, no, there is absolutely no And there is 
the trends that I talked about earlier about how support for the death penalty nationwide uh, has plummeted uh, over the last 20 years is also uh, the trend that you see uh, among all religious groups. So um, whether you are Catholic, uh, whether you are a main, uh, mainline Protestant, uh, whether you're evangelical Christian, uh, whether you are um, Buddhist or Jewish or Muslim, support for the death penalty is dropping in the United States and it's dropping across all religious groups. Um, one of the interesting things is, though, when you look at which demographic uh, is most supportive of the death penalty, um, it's a combination of race and religion and gender uh, and, in some, in, in some respects, uh, age. Uh, white, male, evangelical, Christian, older. Uh, that is where, that, that's the demographic that has the highest concentration of support for the death penalty. Um, among all other religious groups um, and different genders, uh, women who are evangelical, uh, white Christian uh, evangelical, uh, are still supportive of the death penalty, but not in nearly the same numbers as, uh, as the white male uh, evangelicals. Uh, and it's interesting, though, because just as uh, we've seen a move among Catholics away from the death penalty, um, the majority of white Catholics still support the death penalty. Uh, Latino Catholics and black Catholics, uh, a majority oppose the death penalty. Uh, when you look at black Protestant uh, religions, uh, congregations and affiliations, uh, a majority oppose the death penalty. Uh, a majority of white Protestants, non-evangelicals, still support the death penalty, uh, but, uh, but the numbers are dropping. Um, the, uh, some of the public opinion polls uh, that have looked at religious groups uh, have shown that people who report higher levels of religiosity, which doesn't mean faith and doesn't mean belief in, uh, in, in, in mercy and humanity and so forth, uh, but report uh, higher levels of church attendance and things along those lines, um, the higher the level of religiosity and orthodoxy, the higher the level of support for the death penalty. Um, that also, you know, that's also something that you can't say that because someone uh, reports higher levels of religiosity that they are against the death penalty. You know, I mean, Sister Helen Crajan, uh is, uh, mm-hmm. is an example. Pope Francis uh, is, is an example. And there are many, many highly religious individuals uh, who, uh, who are morally opposed to the death penalty. But again, here, the trend is away from the death penalty. And the Pew poll showed that um, although support for the death penalty among those by themselves uh, as uh, evangelical Christians uh, remained high, there was a 7 percentage point drop in support uh, of those who called themselves um, evangelical Christians uh, just between 2011 and 2015. Hmm. Wow. Well, that is, yeah, that is amazing. Um, so uh, we're getting near the hour mark, and I really appreciate you uh, being so generous with your time here. I do try to end it on a, a more fun note. So what note, or what music have you been listening to lately here? Well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of boring when it comes to that. <laughs> uh, my, my dad uh, was a Broadway set designer, hmm. uh, and, um, and the New York City Opera uh, recently did a production of Candide, mm-hmm. uh, which ironically has a scene about a wrongful execution in it. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Candide is a Leonard Bernstein um, uh, opera. Beautiful music, lyrics by uh, Sondheim and, and some others. So so I've been listening uh, to Leonard Bernstein uh, and, and his stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not usually that boring, but you know, West Side Story is fabulous. Uh, Candide is fabulous. It's great American music. Uh, and so that's what I've been listening to recently. Oh, cool. Well, is there anything else I didn't ask you about that you'd want to get in there here? Well, there's one thing you asked about, but I, I didn't answer it. Okay. Uh, I think it's like I got sidetracked. That was the question of race. 
Oh, okay, go ahead. Uh, it is absolutely true that race plays a significant role uh, in the death penalty. Um, the first question, uh, when we look at race in the U.S., you know, there are stories about white preference and there are stories against bias, uh, about bias against people of color. Both of these factors are present in capital cases. Uh, when we look at who gets sentenced to death, uh, the first thing that has to happen is there has to be a charging decision. Uh, and what we see across the country is that the charging decisions uh, are influenced by race. It may be conscious, it may be unconscious, um, but uh, you are much more likely to be charged with a capital offense if you kill a victim who is considered a person of value. Uh, and victims of value tend to be uh, white, not people of color. Uh, and persons of value tend to be white women more than uh, uh, more than any other class of victims. Once you're within that box of white victims, and you take a look at who gets sentenced to death, you see that black defendants are much more likely to be charged and sentenced to death for the murder of a white victim than anybody else. Uh, and so, uh, once you go through the, the first level of uh, of white preference, uh, you then have bias against defendants of color, uh, and you find that you are much, much more likely to seek and impose the death penalty uh, against um, black victims. Uh, I'm sorry, against black defendants uh, accused of killing white victims and Latinos uh, accused of killing white victims. The other thing that we didn't uh, have a chance to talk about, and we could go on for a long time about this, is the innocence cases and prosecutorial misconduct. Because there's a lot of argument that there are problems with the death penalty, but maybe we can make the evidence better. Uh, maybe we can uh, uh, deal with junk science. Uh, maybe we can fix uh, eyewitness procedures. Maybe we can make interrogation procedures better so that we don't have so many uh, coerced confessions uh, or false confessions. Uh, but the one thing we can never control for is human nature. Uh, and 18 of the last 20 exonerations in capital cases have involved police or prosecutorial misconduct. And as long as we have human nature and people who are willing to cheat uh, or who are seeking uh, to pin charges on somebody for improper reasons, we are never going to be able to eliminate the possibility that we're going to be executing innocent people. Right. Well, and then in one of those cases in Arkansas, you had the, uh, what was it, the prosecutor that had an affair with the judge? <laughs> That's like... right. That's right. And how can you have confidence in the fairness of those proceedings? No, of course not. Uh, but uh, what was the outcome of the case? Yeah, the right. did not consider that issue. It was not properly raised. Counsel didn't raise it at the appropriate time. Well, um, <laughs> thanks a lot for taking the time. I, I definitely want to talk again here. I definitely more we didn't get to, but uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye.
you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review the podcast everywhere it's available, which includes iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. It really helps. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. Until next time.